Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 367 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Remodel Health. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry to start learning today about how your organization can save on healthcare costs, including free access to their savings calculator and brand new ebook, and by Promedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, I am so uh, happy to welcome back Jim Tomberlin and Warren Bird to the podcast. We had different episodes with both of them and uh, they're back. They got a brand new book on church mergers and we are talking about future church attendance. What's it going to be like in the future? The rise of church mergers and also what to do if you don't think your church can make it. I do another podcast called Church Pulse Weekly with David Kinneman and one of the data points we're, we're checking is that some pastors say about, depending on the week, 20% say, yeah, I'm not sure if our church is going to make it or not through COVID. So Jim Tomberlin back in 2005 founded Multisite Solutions, a church consulting company that's assisted hundreds of churches, worked through multi-site, church merger, and multiplication consultation. And then last year in 2019, Multisite Solutions merged with Tony Morgan and the Unstuck Group to expand its capacity to assist more churches. And then Warren Bird has, uh, my joke with him is always, you've written more books than I've read, which is somewhat true. He has co-authored or authored 33 books for church leaders. And uh, he is currently vice president of research for the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability, the ECFA. And uh, he helps churches and not-for-profits and is based in New York City. So, so glad to have them back. And, uh, you know, this is just a really unusual time. And what I want to talk to you about at the very end of this podcast and the What I'm Thinking About segment is just, what do you do now that you're online a lot more? Are there some traps you should watch for as the pastor of a local church or a local leader? And I think there are. I will outline uh, five of them for you. So, if you're a little bit tired of your expensive, outdated group insurance plan, the health insurance industry is hard enough to navigate, but annual rate increases make it especially painful, especially in these uh, really crazy times we're in. So listeners of this podcast alone have saved over a million and a half dollars during the last 18 months with Remodel Health, because what they do is they go out and find you new healthcare plans that are less expensive and often provide better benefits than your current plan. So if you're into saving money, why not take healthcare off your list of stressors? If you want to learn more, Remodel Health's benefit consultants can run a free analysis that is unique to your team to help you evaluate all your options. Just go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, Go there today. You can learn more. There's also some self-serve things there. Their free savings calculator, church buyer's guide, a brand new ebook. So that's remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. And then uh, speaking of social media, my goodness, <laughs> you need a lot more of it, right? A multi-site church with six campuses ran into some big problems lately. Each campus had a high demand for social media content and creative work in the new normal. And the central team couldn't handle it. It just got worse. So two creatives got overwhelmed and they quit. 
Now, the executive pastor's dilemma was, well, how do we staff up creatives for each campus to meet the demand and be wise financially in this economy? So their answer was rather than hiring two new staff, they went to Promedia Fire, who provided a custom-tailored church growth plan proposal to handle the creative demands of all six campuses. The CFO took a look at the proposal, realized that Promedia Fire was less than the cost of a single staff hire at each campus, and maybe you're facing a similar dilemma, whether you're multi-site or not multi-site. If you want to learn more, book a free strategy session today by going to promediafire.com forward slash church growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash church growth. Well, I am so excited to have Jim Tomberlin and Warren Byrne on the podcast. So let's go. Here's my conversation with both of them about mergers, multi-site, and the future of the church. Warren and Jim, welcome back to the podcast. It's so great to have you, but together this time. Last time, I think it was uh, different episodes, so. A delight to be here today. Thank you, Carrie. I listen to you, I learn from you, and it's exciting to be part of the conversation. It's great to be back as well, Carrie, and uh, I echo Warren's uh, appreciation of your uh, contribution and help to our work. Well, it's fun and it's great to come full circle where, you know, the people whose books we've read and counsel we've, uh, I've studied are, are now friends and uh, we get to have these meaningful conversations. So, so much has changed. Both of you, you know, Jim in the multi-site world and then Warren, who I always joke has written more books than I've read, which is almost true. Both of you have got new assignments, uh, which is really exciting, but you have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the church, both statistically but also through your vast networks and and consulting. And I mean, it's been the most disruptive year in any of our lifetimes, I think <laughs> we can safely say. Uh, so much has changed in 2020. What are some of the big issues, just to start at the broadest level, that churches are struggling with this year? Um, what, are, what are you seeing them in the middle of this disruption? What would you say the pain points are that have emerged on your radar screen? Great question, Carrie. Let me give two metaphors. One is the one Ed Stetzer has popularized about playing without the queen and uh, learning to be a better chess player by not using your queen. And that's what's happening for so many pastors, not having the queen, which is the facility. The other one is an analogy Le Levi Lusco popularized that I'd like to expand a little bit is we all think it's a race and all of a sudden we, and that's what we prepared for and we're doing. And all of a sudden we turn the corner and we realize, oh, no, this is a biathlon. You know, I, I have to learn to swim. And, and we do the swimming, and that was the shift to online everything. But now, surprise, surprise, we get out of the water with the swimming, and we're handed a bicycle and said, oh, no, actually, this is a triathlon. You've got <laughs> another skill to learn, and that skill is still, that third phase is, is uh, still emerging, whether it's learning to deal with people with anxiety and, and the suicides, that whole range of stuff that's going to emerge as the pandemic's lifting or what. But, but it's a leadership issue that must translate into empowering the people of the church. Leaders have to get, as they figure out their act, if it's not ultimately translated to the people of the church, uh, it's not going to have the impact that's needed. Hmm. 
Jim, what would you say you're seeing as some of the big pain points in the church leaders you're consulting with? And you're now part of said Tony Morgan's uh, Unstuck Group, which is really exciting. Tony's a, a leader I deeply, deeply respect. Well, I think Warren mentioned that it's somewhat passing here. I think we have had this love affair with buildings for centuries. And, um, and the, we've made Christianity a building-centric faith. And uh, I like to remind my team here, you know, for the first 300 years of the Christian faith, uh, there was no church buildings to go to. Uh, there were small groups, house churches. They were meeting by a, by a river. Um, and so I think uh, the, one of the, the breakthroughs of this COVID time is to really break us. Uh, buildings don't reach people. I've been saying that for years. People reach people. Ministry reaches people. But we also realized uh, buildings don't bring in money. We, we panicked. We thought we, we, we can't survive if we don't meet. Well, we quickly figured out we don't have to have buildings to generate income. People were very quickly willing to make that you know, shift to giving online. So uh, I think this is all bodes well, I think, for, our, for the future. Yeah, by the time this airs, I'll have a blog post out called Our Church Building's Dead or something like that. And uh, I, think, I think this is a real uh, moment for the church. Both of you have had your finger on the pulse for a long time, and you've been um, looking at trends. When you think of crisis as being an accelerator, uh, that's not really a surprise, right? Like you've been saying for a long time, okay, we got to rethink our buildings. And yet you're also, Jim, I'll, I'll start with you. You're the multi-site guy, right? Or multi-site guy, wherever you happen to be located in the country with your vocabulary. Um, is multi-site dependent on buildings or facilities or physical meeting? Or how, how, does, how might this morph in the future? Well, it's definitely going to be morph. And again, all these trends that we're seeing now in this COVID season and in predicting for the post-COVID season were only accentuation or accelerations of what we were seeing before COVID. But uh, there are a lot of church, multi-site churches that were not going to make, even before COVID, they weren't going to be, we going to be uh, getting out of the multi-site movement because they never really fully embraced the multi-site mindset. Hmm. They really still were stuck at the monosite with one or two satellite campuses. Uh, but those, ch- those churches will fade. Uh, especially if they're not financially feasible. Uh, and they were fading before they were already? Fading before. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few high-profile church leaders got out of the multi-site movement and everybody was saying, hey, the multi-site movement is dead. Well, no, uh, a few got out. Very few that are getting out, more and more are getting in. Uh, I mean, multi-site and more church planters now are starting their churches with a multi-site vision or strategy. But... Um, but I think those who embraced the model and really made the shift and uh, um, will survive and thrive in this, in this new model because this is all about taking church to the people and uh, buildings are, are a means to the end. They're not the end game. That was the, the point I'm making. We've made the Christian faith all about a church in the past. We started church. The goal of a new church is to, a, a building and the bigger the building, the greater the success. And well, we learned we can build too big and, um, and, you know, buildings are just an instrument, a means to the end. And so uh, those uh, in the multi-site new normal will be what we were already predicting, recommending before all this. Um, we need smaller facilities, launch big, smaller facilities, multiple services, get to financial sustainability within a couple of years. Those churches that are good at that will flourish in the next season. Those who have not will fade in terms of their multi-site model. Uh, that's a really succinct summary of uh, a lot of the trends that I've been seeing too, right? Smaller footprints, uh, 
financial sustainability, not just, oh, we're going to launch a campus because, well, it's a cool thing to do. Uh, Warren, anything on, and we'll come back to multi-site, but anything you want to add in there? Yeah, uh, I've just been involved with a mega church study that happened pre-pandemic, and we'll, the results will be out about the time this podcast is. And we've tracked, it's a survey that happened in 2005, 2010, 2015, and 2020. Mm. So we can track long-term. One of the things we tracked is maximum seating capacity. And in 2015, for mega churches, churches of 2,000 or more in attendance, in 2015, the maximum seating capacity average was 1,200. In 2020, the average seating capacity was again 1,200. So the building is not getting bigger, but the, the turns of it and the uses of other sites has grown astronomically. Likewise, let me give you the numbers on multi-site growth because it mm -hmm. is just staggering. In the year 2000, 23%, 27, 46, 63. Now in 2020, 70% of megachurches are multi-sites. So inherently, they are using the building multiple times and other locations. And as Jim says, having to do it wisely. ECFA just did a survey of churches that were most at risk in the pandemic. And what we learned is those that were financially troubled going into the pandemic are the ones that are most likely not to make it once they come out of the pandemic. And that will include those that were multi-site, but didn't quite get how to do multi-site realistically. Hmm. Yeah, wow. I mean, already there's so many places we could go with even the things that you've raised. We only have an hour. It's like, oh, this is great. Do you have any sense? And I realize this is a bit of speculation. If you prefer not to answer this, don't, don't answer. But do you have any sense, like even a rough idea of what percentage of churches may not make it through this season, knowing that we don't even know when the season is going to end. Like we have no idea. By the time this thing airs, who knows what will have happened. I mean, an asteroid could have hit us. We, we have no clue. It's that kind of year. But like, uh, I think that's a really good, and that's what they say about businesses too, right? Like the businesses that were running on five days cash flow, they're like a bung on a windshield. They're already gone. But there are churches that are going to be caught too. Any idea what percentage or number of churches may not make it? And then what are the conditions for churches that won't make it? Churches have an incredible lingering ability. It's not like the pandemic lifts and three weeks later, X number of churches decide we can't do it. Let's merge. Let's, you know, do something else. Right. Um, it's a long, lingering, painful death of saying, God, of, of prayer, of, of let's try this. Let's try that. Uh, and then Finally, kind of like the, the dying swimmer picture of once down, two down, three times down, uh, finally saying we need help. Wow. And, and so any statistics are going to need to look back several years after the pandemic to tell us the actual closers because it's going to be drip by step by one here, one there, 10 there, 10 there. Uh, that's a good answer. Jim, any thoughts on Can, that? Yeah, I would say, you know, at, at the Unstuck Group, we have uh, Tony Morgan has, has, has a chart that we use in evaluating where churches are at, a bell, bell curve chart. And uh, on the left side of the bell curve is where the healthy churches are. Uh, on the right side is the, we have these seven stages of churches. But on the, uh, on the, far, on the right side, the uh, decline inside, 17% of churches, this is pre-COVID, were on life support. 
Mm. Uh, another 8% what we call preservation. So it's about 25% of the churches in America before, the, before COVID were, uh, you know, holding on, but, but definitely declining and in their last stages. Uh, a lot like J.C. Penney was holding on. Yeah, yeah. COVID, and COVID, you know, settled it. It, it mm -hmm. could have probably lingered on a few more years. And, uh, and a lot of churches before, that, before COVID could probably, like Warren just said, have amazing ability just to keep hanging on. Uh, but they were, I consider those kind of churches, and by the way, 61% of those churches are in the maintenance mode, uh, I mean, mm. uh, in addition. So that's, that's like about 85% of churches in America before COVID were in maintenance, preservation, or life support. That 25% of maintenance and, life, and or, uh, preservation and life support, uh, COVID will accelerate their decline unless they turn right. themselves around. So two, two notes real quick. Uh, Tony actually blogged on that, Tony Morgan, on my site uh, a couple years ago. We will link to that in the show notes. And secondly, you guys can correct me because you may have even known Lyle Schaller. I never did, but... Uh, I wrote a book on Lyle Schaller. I took the best of his wisdom and, and in his senior years, we worked on it together to uh, make it possible. And so you once again make my opening point. Thank you, Warren. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but I think it was, so you can maybe tell me this because I've either quoted or misquoted Lyle Schaller, who I'm pretty sure I read when I was just starting out a book he wrote in the 70s or 80s that said, small churches. And by that, he means like 30 people, you know, that little country church with, you know, the Tomberlands and, and the birds and the Newhoffs and they kind of hang out. He said, they're like cats. He says, they have nine lives and you can't kill them. Uh, it's, did Lyle actually say that? And there is truth to the small church. I think that's very true that like, it's going to be death by a thousand pinpricks. It's like, this family's gone. This family's gone. We only need a few dollars to keep the lights on. Oh, I guess it's over. Um, and, and we'll get into that when we talk about mergers too a little bit later on in, in the interview. Um, but any thoughts on what are some signs in your mind that a church will not make it? Uh, because you got thousands of pastors listening going, gosh, we may have been in maintenance mode or death rattle or survival, you know, before. So what are, what are some things I should be looking for? Whatever you measure, baptisms, uh, conversions, uh, attendance growth, uh, newcomer percentages, whatever it is, if it has declined for several straight years, that needs to be addressed or that trajectory will continue to the death of the church, even if, the, as you say, the death occurs before people realize it. Just by the way, the national number is 2%. 2% of churches close each year, which is why the church planting community says if a denomination or anybody else isn't planting at least 3% new churches, you're not even gaining ground, which sadly most aren't. Jim, did you have anything to add to that? Probably what makes the decision final is the finances. And I think this is what we saw in this as well. Churches were willing who would never change, even though their baptisms are down, their attendance was down, their, you know, everything was down you know, in terms of people and discipleship and conversions and all that, but they're not willing to change still. But when they saw that if we don't get online, we won't have any financial finances. And so unfortunately, I'm, the good news is they demonstrate they could change. Mm -hmm. Their financials, uh, if, we, if we don't have any money coming in, we cannot stay open. And uh, the sad thing is 
I wish they had that same kind of motivation to change, to reach more people, make more disciples. Here's a shallerism. He says to ask the question, are our church's best years yet ahead? The healthier the church, the more people who feel that the church's best years are yet ahead. Hmm. Closer to death the church is, the more people who feel like our church's best years were in 1973, and if only 1973 could come again or whatever year, we'll be ready. Mm-hmm. And they are ready for that, sadly. Wow. Okay. Now you said something really interesting and you both sent me some data, some summary from the book that you worked on together. And one of the surprises, I think this is in Tony Morgan's research too, Jim, is that your finances can be healthy and your volunteer base can be healthy and yet you can still be in decline. Can you explain that? Because first of all, is that accurate? And secondly, it seems so counterintuitive. Can you, can you explain why that is or nuance that? I would say yes. You can have you 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 can be well financially well sustaining, uh, and and that gives an artificial sense of of life and success. Um, but be in decline with attendance, or uh, and have enough volunteers because everybody is serving that you have. But uh, there's no new life. There's no new growth. But we're not we're not feeling any concern because we have plenty of money. Hmm. From endowments from Uh, older uh, attenders who have more financial margin and are generous to their church, et cetera. And so some of the, the, the uh, healthiest growing churches in America, you know, uh, are short on finances, you know, have more, they have more vision than they have money. And a Hmm. lot of declining churches have more money than vision. And so, um, yes, uh, that can happen. It does happen. Warren. On the flip side of your question, there are an awful lot of fast-growing churches that are in trouble financially and and haven't paused to realize it in that they are counting on the new people who keep coming in and adding their amounts to their budget and not realizing that they're really not growing the stewardship and generosity of the flock that God has given them. So according to some Barna data, and I don't want to make this all data-driven, but um, it's fascinating. So about roughly, it, it changes month to month, but let's say 25% of churches uh, beca- who, are, who are meeting online are experiencing record attendance. And often these are churches that had an online presence before, so they can benchmark it. So there is a small segment of churches, and I've talked to numerous pastors like this, I'm sure you have too, who are like, you know what, we don't want to say it too out loud. We never had more people join us online, never had more decisions, and never had a better financial year in the worst collapse, the worst unemployment. And that's roughly a quarter of all churches. Any thoughts on that? I just love your reactions. I'm delighted anytime the gospel goes out and more people hear it. And I think like Easter 2020, more people heard the gospel because of everybody being online and and having opportunities, or at least recorded the gospel for people to hear in sometime in the future. But with you, Carrie, I'm strongly concerned about what many call the vanity metrics of looking at online numbers, which Facebook especially, you know, you, you linger on something for three seconds and it's counted as a view. And I realize that many people uh, uh, reset to count different ways, but really the engagement 
carry one of your themes uh, for at least the past year, are the things that we really must measure. You know, how many people go into our online prayer room after the service? How many people come to the after party after the service? How many people download this resource during the week? How many people call a friend in response to the something in the message and then in their online groups talk about how it went? How many people uh, take the online survey? How many people pray to receive Christ and then and then say it in the chat? There are ways to measure engagement online. And I really think a realistic picture of what's happening online will happen more and more as churches look at those uh, statistics. I would agree, Carrie, that um, the online experience that churches are having shows that we can expand our footprint, our reach. Uh, but I, uh, the new normal will be, as it's been said on your podcast and other places, uh, the online campus now, instead of a side door or the back door, it'll become the front door to the church, but in a multi-site model or even a monosite model. Uh, but uh, it will be the front door in and with a goal of directing them to local congregations, physical locations. I, I like the word fit, the fidgetal church, <laughs> that uh, the, new, the, new, the new normal will be both and. Yeah, yeah, it's a hybrid model. What are uh, what are some thoughts? Because I mean, this is sort of speculation at this point, but just because crisis is an accelerator, any thoughts or research you've seen on what you suspect will happen to future in-person church attendance, like people actually going to church? It was already on the slide for decades, but um, any thoughts on where that might be? And let's let's assume for the purposes of this question that there's a vaccine, that it's safe, that you can drop the mask. Okay, and life is into whatever the new normal is, and there's not the threat that there is today. Any thoughts on where in-person church attendance will, will land on the other side of this? You have two aspects of that question. First is the frequency of attendance. And as has been, researchers have documented, that is less and less frequent. You know, I grew up as a kid and saw perfect attendance pens, and that was kind of the, the standard. And now you know, here I'm an elder at a church, and if I'm there two weeks or maybe three, that's incredible back when we could meet. Now, I was somewhere else in church, maybe at my kid's church or visiting a church or whatever that other week, but you can be very active and engaged in a church even if your attendance frequency has gone down. The question of overall attendance in terms of packed room, the, the so-called 80% rule that says, you know, once you hit 80%, it's too full, but but you can, people are uh, in suburban and urban settings are willing to gather up to 80%. That's going to change. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's a lingering discomfort uh, that's, that's going to take a long time to rebuild the confidence. And the analogy of uh, a, a music concert. I can either go to church and sing and be part of it, or I can listen to it on the radio. Is my heart? Each of them has a different contribution uh, to feeding my soul. But but I have to be more motivated. There has to be more value given for me to take the time to drive to the church building for the in-person worship uh, than just watching it online and uh, singing along embarrassedly uh, with just my wife and myself in our home. Carrie, I don't think we're ever going to go back or see the pre-COVID church attendance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, can you tell me why? It, it I, I, I'm not disagreeing with either of you. It's just an extremely unpopular message. And again, every single day on our channels, we see people going, no, it's going to go back to normal. Tell me why you landed there, Jim, because I, I do not disagree with you at all. Well, as Warren said, I, this, the frequency was already in decline. Um, and this gets back, I think, to the fact that for 200 plus years in America, North America, there was a value in our culture that said, Church, church attendance is important. Good people go to church or should go to church. It didn't mean they all did. But that value, that a church attendance and local church is an, is an asset to the community that has shifted certainly before the turn of the century. But in this century, um, we are in that post-Christian era where no longer is church attendance seen as a, as a positive value. If anything, it's suspect. Uh, church attenders used to be respected. Pastors used to be respected in our culture just for, this, for their position with who they were, now they're almost suspected if you're one of those that go to church every week or go to church often. But we saw every generation, the, the builder generation, they were in church every week. My in-laws are in 92 and 87. They, they, they ask us all the time, were you in church this week? And they forget we can't go to church right now. But that's such an important value to them. And then the boomers, are my, our generation, uh, me and Warren's generation, uh, we were we went pretty off, you know, three out of four Sundays a month. I would say when I was a pastor, that's what people mostly did. I mean, they assumed to be in church every week if they were committed to the Christ and to the local church. But every generation, the, the Gen X, a little less, millennials, a little, even let more or less, uh, uh, Gen Z, even less. And so I think for that reason, now I do think this experience has highlighted to church goers uh, how important it is to meet together in person with other people, not just to hear a sermon uh, or even just to worship, but just to be tangibly with others. I think that uh, need will be felt stronger. I don't know that it means that they'll come back every week. It won't be. We were down at 1.7 times a month, as you know, before COVID was the average church attendance. I think that could go to once a month, but I think Mm -hmm. there will be a more of an emotional commitment to be connected with a local church, but it won't be there uh, every every week or every, every couple weeks. Now, I think also the online experience has been so uh, good for so many churches and for churchgoers, it, it gives them now an alternative to, um, I'm not, I can still be engaged. And as you talked about, the, the new language isn't attendance, it's engagement. Uh, and, and then we got to figure out, and there's varying levels of engagement. But I think we can engage people, uh, you know, who are not in the room. It's not just about being in the room anymore. Jim, you say the online has been so good. For larger churches that have the skill and the staff and the equipment, it has been. Smaller churches have really struggled just to get the iPod. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in some cases, that's extremely accurate, Warren, but keep going. Um, <laughs> I have watched uh, each, each during the pandemic I go to quote my church and then I take a couple of hours and visit a lot of churches of a lot of different sizes in a lot of locations. And I just, it's painful to watch how awkward and limited a lot of churches have done the worship and, and it's not a drawing factor at all. And even in talking with people who've been part of churches like that, it's painful for them. Uh, to watch. They're not excited about it. And frankly, they've watched the services of other larger churches that technologically can put it together, which is going to lead, I think, as the pandemic lifts to more church shuffling uh, yes. by 
by people. So I want to talk about that with you because you have both just uh, written, co-authored a new work about church mergers, et cetera. And one of the things like underneath that 25% stat we talked about earlier, where uh, regardless of how you measure online numbers, it's pretty clear because when the offerings follow and you've got like record givings and a record downturn year, something is going on to the, and I've talked anecdotally and you got to be careful not to Uh, plot trends by anecdote to numerous people who are like, well, you know, I used to go to X church in my small town, but I've discovered Elevation or I've discovered Hillsong or I've discovered whatever. Uh, And I think even at Conexus, which is, you know, not a gigantic church, we're a larger church for Canada, uh, but we picked up all kinds of people. And some of them have started giving, some of them have started to go uh, into groups. And in a church trends post, I think of that as consolidation. In other words, you look, at, you look at what's been happening in multi-site over the years, some of that is definitely evangelism, but some of that is consolidation. In other words, you know, five local churches closed, but mega church X moved in and opened up two new locations in the area. And some of the people who used to go to the smaller churches are now going to this campus of, of, a, of a larger church. How much, I mean, it's a bit of speculation, a little bit of like, you know, wetting your finger and putting it in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. But do you think some of that could be happening right now precisely because of what you talk about, Warren, where it's a pretty lackluster experience online for some churches. So they found a church with better production and better preaching and like, oh, this is where we're camping out. Any thoughts on whether there's further consolidation coming or happening? People who are anchored in a church are anchored because of relationships there. And this is actually the downside of the very large church that doesn't necessarily have relationships. Although, although interestingly, in this megachurch survey, we found that 90% of megachurches say that small groups are central to their strategy for doing ministry. All-time high. Um, so on the, in, in a large church, you get bigger by getting smaller through the small groups. In the smaller church, if you don't have those cohesive relationships, those are the people that are going to look elsewhere and say, well, it, it really doesn't matter. I would say, that, uh, Carrie, that the churches that are, many churches that are, will go into the merger conversation is to do what Warren just said, that they, they want to stay together as a group of people that they know and love but they know they can't sustain themselves. So maybe we could join another church in the, in the area that we respect, uh, become uh, a, a campus of theirs. We could have their life-giving DNA, you know, re-energize uh, us, revitalize us, come under, uh, you know, their direction and still stay in place and still, still have our church family here. So um, we're versus just everybody dispersing, going somewhere else. I think we'll see both of those things happening. Interesting. One more dimension, Carrie. Yes, yes, it's true for multi-sites that more than one out of three multi-site campuses come by way of merger. But the flip side is something Jim and I discovered in this national research project we did about mergers that led to the expanded and updated edition of Better Together. And that's that one out of five church plants, new churches, acquire their facility through a merger. So your image just a minute ago of this, you know, the bringing of all the the smaller churches together into one big one, 
is not necessarily the right image going forward. There's also the image of a church that went through its life cycle and says, we don't know how to bring Jesus to a new generation, that the merger is with a church planter who starts a new chapter in that facility and brings new life, and it just starts everything again, and it's a it's a win all the way around. Hmm. Yeah, tell me when you updated Better Together, what were some things that have changed in the church uh, merger movement, and what were some of your key findings? Let me just say, uh, in our first edition, that was nine years ago, uh, the big takeaway from that was the multi-site church movement has really uh, changed the merger conversation from a lose-lose or a win-lose to a win-win. And we've discovered that to our a big takeaway from that t- eight, 10 years ago was how many those churches that initiated that merger conversation were not the large growing churches. It was the struggling, declining churches who initiated mm-hmm. the conversation. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, um, we're still seeing that the, the, the largest group that are initiating the conversation are the declining churches, but more and more lead churches are learning how to initiate those conversations or just by being a better uh, partner in the community and, um, and a relationship grows um, to a place where um, it makes sense, hey, let's join together. We could be better together. And so I think that, but the multi-site was the big aha eight, 10 years ago. Can you define lead churches just for a moment, just for people who haven't read the book? We, we describe a merger as like a dance. And in a dance, there's one who leads and one who follows. Uh, you can't have two leads. Uh, one leads, one follows. Or one leads in a church merger dance, one leads and the other joins or follows. And so when we talk about a lead church, that's that, who's the lead church where that culture, that DNA is the dominant culture. It's that vision, that mission of that church uh, is what's leading the way. And, you know, the big takeaway 10 years ago was uh, these are more mission-driven versus survival-driven, although there's usually a church in trouble or stuck, and they see this as a way for us to get unstuck or uh, turn around by joining with a, with a lead church that um, we respect and follow. So we talk about a lead and a joining church. That's great. Harry, the yep. old model, which Schaller was the first one to articulate, was two struggling churches joining together, thinking, well, we'll just take the best of both of us, and that'll leapfrog us forward. It didn't. It it saddled the two of them and they ended up declining. So you can't, the merger of two equals almost never works. But the flip side, using the new model of lead church and joining church, in our survey of a thousand merger churches, 82% said we would do it again. Wow. So this, there are ways to make this work in a healthy, uh, joyful, kingdom winning way for both congregations. Carrie, I would say one of the takeaways in our new book, though, was was not just, there's still the multi-site benefit uh, and factor in mergers, but we also saw uh, that 39% of church uh, planters acquired a facility through a merger. Mm-hmm. I have a number of friends who would fit that bill. Yeah. And so there's a lot of declining churches with, with assets, with property, and decline and need a desperate need of a vibrant ministry. There are a lot of new church startups and schools or other places like that that are, have a vibrant ministry and desperate need of, of a facility. 
So there's mm-hmm. a huge win-win when they, those church, churches find each other. We also see that a growing number of church leaders are seeing mergers as a wonderful succession strategy uh, or pastor search strategy. The old strategy of let's look all across the country and move somebody across the country and who we hope might be a good fit. Uh, there's a lot of risk with that. Or we could join the church down across town that we know and respect and who's been there for many years and fits. Uh, there's, a little, there's a lot less risk in that than the old way of getting a pastor, finding a pastor. So, But we're seeing the succession, the church planting benefit. Um, we're seeing churches that... Um, uh, see this as a way to um, diversify our church, become a more diverse church. So we're, we're seeing a lot more applications to church mergers. And with the decline in the church attendance before COVID, uh, there, there, was a, there was a major transition coming. coming. Hmm. And so this, I think this season will, is, will, has, as we said, is accelerating those conversations. And uh, almost weekly, Carrie, I'm, I'm aware of or in touch with a church that's having these merger conversations. We've seen several mergers occur all virtually. Town hall, virtual town halls. Really? Votes. What is, what is precipitating those virtual mergers? Because you would think that people would almost want to say, okay, with the world going crazy, let's put this on hold for a few months. We'll come back to it when things normalize. So what, what is behind those virtual mergers? Well, let me give you a specific example. Carrie, yeah. you wrote the forward to the book Liquid Church, mm-hmm. and in it, it, one of the currents of evangelism that it talks about is the merger strategy. And uh, just in the middle of the pandemic, there was a church that had been talking with Liquid Church about, you know, our pastor is getting ready to retire. Uh, we can't seem to uh, get the gospel out into our community anymore. We've got solid people. We've got a wonderful building you know, uh, can this merger idea happen? And during the pandemic, a vote was taken virtually. Uh, everything happened online. And uh, and the congregation is being welcomed into the Liquid Church congregation and integrated in different ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the pandemic uh, lifts to the point that, you know, construction and stuff like that on the church to kind of uh, ready it for... Uh, physical presence further uh, will happen, but it's a great story of an intentionality that, hey, we're not going to let a pandemic slow us down. This is what we think God is up to. I had a church in in Boston that uh, a growing multi-site church that put the word out to the local churches in in Boston when COVID hit, hey, if you need any help with learning how to do, uh, we have a studio, you can use our studio. If you need help on learning, helping people give online, uh, any help we can offer you, we're here for you. Well, that word went out, and there were some churches that responded that needed help. One of those churches just recently came to him and said, you know what, we're down to 15 people. We were before COVID. Our, we, we started in 1815. <laughs> they, they're so, they're, they're, they've been around so long, they couldn't find their church bylaws, and so they suspended them a year ago. But, uh, uh, but they, and now they said, you know, you've been helpful to us. We realize we're all, we're all seven, over 70 years old. We have a 30-year-old pastor that's helping us right now. We grew up in the church, but can we talk to you about joining with you? Wow. I have, I have another friend who leads a large church over 10 campuses, and he says he's getting multiple approaches a week uh, during COVID, which is interesting. 
What other trends did or did you find in your research, things that have changed with church mergers in the last decade or so? I would say, first of all, the acceptance of mergers as a viable option has become, now it's not seen as a, as a, it doesn't have the baggage it had 10 years ago. Uh, when we were first writing about this 10 years ago, uh, that was the biggest, um, uh, we, we wrote the book to demonstrate this is a viable option and there's a lot of win-wins in this. And we tried to give some language to the conversation. We talked about four different models for different kinds of mergers. It's very important to understand which kind we're having, which, uh, what kind of relationship are, are we, do we see this merger? Uh, we try to give some language and some process about how to have these conversations. We've identified 25 distinct issues that every church merger has to address. Uh, those things still, when we did this updated version of our book, we thought the good news is we didn't have to repent of anything we wrote 10 years ago. <laughs> but we were able to uh, uh, update some of, a lot of the stories. We've got a lot of new stories that we uh, have been able to share as well and to develop some more templates and more processes. As, as uh, Warren mentioned, we did a survey of nearly 1,000 churches last fall yeah. who have had mergers. So they gave us 28 distinct new facts. But these are some of the things that uh, came out of uh, our recent um, update of our book. Carrie, one of the learnings, uh, a question that always comes up early in a merger discussion is, what about the lead pastor of the potential joining church? And we found 79%. So four out of five, that pastor stayed, not in the capacity of still pastoring that congregation as lead pastor, but in many other roles available, whether uh, missions, small groups, senior yeah. adult ministry, and so forth, maybe on another campus if it's a multi-campus uh, church. But but the idea, the stereotype of, oh, well, that just means all of a sudden the pastor is out of a job, maybe, but maybe not. So it gives life, of course, to the struggling congregation and life to the growing congregation as well, to the lead congregation, is sort of the idea of it, right? Yeah, and usually it's it shifts from an inward focus that almost always characterizes a joining church, though there are significant exceptions, um, to an outward focus of how are we going to make disciples of Jesus in our community? And we have new momentum, new tools, new draw, in order to be able to do that. So I'm sure you turned in the manuscript prior to COVID or, you know, certainly not knowing what we know now. Uh, what do you think the new disrupted reality, the accelerator that crisis is, is going to do to church consolidations and mergers? Well, let me just say about, the, about the, how that book got written last fall when the publisher approached us and said, Jim, Warren, could we, we'd like to publish this, republish this in paperback format because it was only in hardback. Are you okay with that? And we said, on one condition, we would love to do it if, on one condition, that you allow us to do an update, expanded version of it. And they said, that'd be great. So that was last fall. We started this process and we looked at releasing this fall, you know, a year later. Um, about the month before COVID hit, we gave our final manuscript <laughs> and, uh, and then COVID hit and we said, you know, could we just have one more, uh, uh, add a few more words to our book in light of COVID? 
the good news is it, it only there was nothing that we had to undo. It just accelerated, as mm-hmm. you said, what we were already seen. But um, but then they came back a couple months later after we you know got the ball further down the road and said you know we're not going to release any books this fall, any new books, um, except for one book, your book, mm-hmm. because it's so timely, and um, and we would agree with that. Uh, this uh, this is going to help. When we asked them in our survey, one of the questions was, "Why did you do the, what? Why did you do the merger?" The joining church had two primary reasons. One is, mo- the big one was financially. We're not going to make it financially. But secondly, even if we are making it financially, we're we're not having the impact we, we need. We need revitalization, and so we think this could be the best way forward is to join with another church instead of trying to do it ourselves. We when we asked the lead churches that question, they had two responses, almost equal. The bigger one was we did this to revitalize declining churches, and we did this to reach more people by mm-hmm. adding more campuses, you know, and and so uh, that was very heartwarming to see that that the um, especially for the lead churches they really wanted to help, and we found that and that the, where mergers best occur when there's some kind of relationship already. Right. It's not just the, we're walking in, put your hands up, everything yeah, on yeah, the table. The perception of a merger is an acquisition, yeah. a takeover. But we have a whole chapter where we just talk about what makes a, a good, are, are you a merger-friendly church? Mm. Talk about what kind of, are you a merger-friendly leader, church leader? But see, the, the goal is you want to keep as many people as possible. I mean, these are people who, who love Jesus, who have relationships in the community who understand the background and the heritage of that church, the more of them that you can engage in the new chapter, it's a win all the way around. So that's just the opposite of the acquisition mentality that says people don't matter. We're just here to swoop up your facility. So what impact, you know, having turned it in a month or two after COVID, but obviously this is going to be a disruption, not an interruption. What do you think is going to happen to mergers in the next two or three years? Jim's going to be very busy doing consultations and the unstuck group of walking people through the process and of training denominational leaders. Like we had one, it happened to be Lutheran, uh, write us when we were inquiring about uh, successful merger examples from his uh, particular synod. He said, you know, I've never considered a merger as a mission-minded, kingdom-gaining approach. I've only seen it as a last resort consolidation uh, uh, reactive strategy. And, and I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, it doesn't have to be that. It could be a proactive, people-reaching, kingdom-expanding approach. How do we do that? And that's what the, the book is designed to be a handbook. Uh, and, of course, Jim and the Unstuck Group are available to walk those through it who want it. But bottom line, mergers are going to be on the rise. Hmm. Definitely that. And we, uh, we are also offering, we'll be offering an online course that you can download yourself and walk through process of, of uh, the merger conversation, as well as coach co- co- uh, churches through individually as if they need it, as they need it. I, I found that uh, for most mergers, it's really helpful to have a third party to help them navigate those difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the role I played in a number of churches over the years. Um, 
but sometimes it's hard for, for a, lead, a lead church pastor can't say to the di- declining church, if you don't join with us or somebody, you're going to be out of business in three years. If I say that as a consultant, as an outside third party, I can say this because I, I care for both. You know, you have a chance to choose your destiny instead of having chosen for you. Uh, I like to say to church, to joining churches, if you stay on this path, um, your, your story is going to come to a close. Your 150-year-old story or 25-year-old story, it's going to come, it's going to finish. But if you join with this other church, the chapter closes, but a new chapter begins. The story continues on. And uh, that's when people begin to see churches this way. And really what you're doing when you're, when you're joining another church, you are really choosing who do we want to lead us? Who's our next pastor? But you're not only getting, typically, if it's a multi-site model, you're not only getting a new lead pastor, you're getting a new local pastor. And, mm. a whole, well, and you're not just getting a pastor with his five kids. You're getting a church of maybe 500 or 5,000. And Jim, the same could be said if you're adopting a church planter to, to you've built a relationship and you're, in essence, welcoming that person to say, we're going to technically close. And by the way, we have a whole chapter on the legal ways of doing the closing. Um, but, but in essence, we're going to adopt you as our child to birth a whole new congregation through us. And that's very exciting. Again, one out of five church planners that end up with a facility acquire it or it comes by way of a merger. That is significant. What uh, you've got. Um, thousands of church leaders listening, tens of thousands. Some of them are leading that small struggling church. and uh, Or maybe it's a mid-sized struggling church or a church over a thousand that saw its best days in the 90s. And they're thinking to themselves, I don't know what the future holds. I don't think our team has the skill set to take it forward into the digital world. Uh, I don't know what in-person worship is going to be. I don't even know. Like maybe, maybe, Maybe our hour has come a merger might be right for us. What would you say to the leader listening right now who is in that position? What counsel would you have for him or her? That God has a plan that all the good foundation that you have laid is not going to end or doesn't have to end. Mm. That God will lead you. So the first thing by far is, are you praying together as as a leadership team and maybe as a whole congregation for that clarity of vision for what the next chapter needs to look like. Now, maybe you'll read along the way a book like Better Together, and and it was designed not just for the, the, the clergy, but for a leadership team to be able to read and discuss. And that might give you a sense, is this something God could show you or not, or is, mm. is prompting or not? Maybe there are other solutions, uh, but, but, but not remaining content with the status quo is the most important thing. And knowing that God has a future and a plan and, and would love to reveal it or unfold it uh, is part of that next step. It's a good word, Pastor Warren. Jim, what would you say? Anything more to that? Well, it's good. So, there are so many pastors and, and, and valiant leaders who love God. They mm. just don't know how to navigate forward. And they, this should not be a low self-image booster to say, we don't know what to do next. 
but it should be a, a prompt to say, Lord, there are resources here. There are people to be reached. Show us what's missing to connect the dots so that we can do it for a new season. What feels like the end of the road might actually be the beginning of a new one. You know, here, you'll love this story. The church yeah. where I'm serving right now as an interim chief of staff here in Miami is 103 years old. About 10 years ago, the church that started at the Central Baptist Church of Miami, downtown Miami, birthed my church, Christ Fellowship. It was called First Baptist Church of Perrine back then, 103 years ago. 10 years ago, they approached us and said, down to, we're down to 50 people downtown, beautiful campus, 1,200 seats, historic registered church. We're not going to survive and make it, but we'd like to give you our building. You're a multi-site church. We want to give our daughter church of 103 years ago our building and because you can relaunch back here uh, and have a vibrant congregation here, which is what we did. And uh, that was a, that's a, an incredible story. So many good things have come out of that that I'm trying mm. to talk about that today. But, um, but that was a group of people, big building, down to 50 people, cannot make it. But there, one of the longtime members there, still with us, said it was the best thing that ever happened to us, was to join our daughter church. And to, wow. Uh, Warren, um, our best days are in front of us now. And now that happens to be right in one of the most growing districts of Miami. Let me tell you my favorite story from the book. It involves Mark Job, downtown Chicago, that had worked with a aging Lutheran church. Turned mm-hmm. out the bishop was going to close the church. And, uh, and the church said, well, why can't we give it to uh, and become part of new life? And uh, the bishop had said, fine. And so now there's this ceremony where the handoff is supposed to happen. The last days, the gathering of the senior saints, they were part of that congregation, the memories. And it, it was a wonderful time of praising God for all he had, he had done uh, through that church. And then the time where the, uh, the president of the congregation uh, stood up to Pastor Mark Job and said, now at this point, I'm supposed to give you, in the ceremony, I'm supposed to give you the keys of the building, but I'm not going to do that. Dead silence. Uh-oh, you know, is there a big surprise coming? He reaches in a paper bag and he pulls up a little plaque and he said, you know, about 20 years ago when it was very popular for everybody to develop a mission statement, we developed a mission statement. And ours says, and he read it, and it's in essence, love God, love your neighbor. Uh, and it's very similar to uh, New Life's uh, mission statement. So I'm not giving you the keys without giving you the mission and you take this mission and agree to do it for a new generation, and we'll give you the keys, our support, our prayers, and everything else. Not a dry eye in the Mm. place. And that's the best of what a merger can be. That's awesome. So for the church planters listening, for the growing churches listening, going, hey, one day when we do meet, a facility would be great, or I, I have a heart for this, we've got the momentum, uh, who may be saying, I wish we had churches approaching us. What would you say to that leader who thinks that they might be a candidate for becoming a lead in a merger? Well, that's one of the number one questions that I get asked all the time, Carrie. How do you initiate a conversation without coming mm-hmm. off abrasive or takeover hostile? And um, we, our answer is it's always about relationship. Um, Best mergers have uh, come out of a relationship, maybe where you have already demonstrated your heart for the for other local churches that you've been collaborative, that um, um, you um, 
show that um, I care about the body of Christ. And I think those who, people who are kingdom-minded have a better opportunity for these mm-hmm. conversations to happen versus my kingdom, my, you know, my own church. Now, many times we'll say uh, to churches, um, leaders who want to light launch a campus in, in a location or, or a church planter who's looking for a facility is to approach a church that might be interested and say, would you be willing to rent space to me? Mm. Um, and um, not merge with us, but to just to rent, could we rent space? Uh, could we rent your worship center? Could we your fellowship hall, your gym? And I've had some churches do that. And then the relationship grows and, and then it becomes natural to say, you know, we've gotten to really know you and love you. And um, we could maybe be a bit good for us to, to join together. But um, that's one way we've seen it. Where I've had churches where we've sent letters to uh, to an area where they want to launch a campus in their in their city, and just saying that we're looking to launch a campus in this community. We are, we're not coming to the community. We already have a lot of people that live in this community and attend our church, and we we're looking for a facility. Would you be willing to rent with us, rent to us, or even join us? Hmm. Every time we've sent that letter out, and there's several churches that call and say, "Let's have a conversation." That's cool. Warren, I'll give you the final word. Anything you would want to say to uh, people who may be in the position of being the lead role because of growth or momentum or uh, bright future? Remember that it's God who's building the church. And, you know, it's easy to think, oh, we found the secret sauce in a way. And I know you never want to go public in admitting that, but it's like, oh, you know, we're really on to something here. Well, Yes, God has showed you a certain way to connect with a certain segment of the culture, uh, but it's God who wants to build the church. And, and in, as Jim has voiced, hmm. in humility, you know, do you really see another congregation as a, as a way to build up the body of Christ, even if the names and the labels get changed? Wow. Are you approaching it with that attitude? Is it a kingdom mindset? And just to carry it one step further, uh, Dave Ferguson with the uh, uh, Exponential Movement and the book Hero Maker and other things has, has said that really to become a level five multiplying church, you've got to learn to network with other churches. It, it doesn't happen alone just because you have good theology and a great fog machine. Uh, you've got to figure out how do we become a kingdom player where I care more about the expansion of the gospel in this city or community than I do about whose name goes on it and uh, who gets the credit and where the money ends up flowing. And if that's your mentality, then God is going to open up doors of connection for you. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, another great conversation, this one together. So tell us about the book, uh, where it's available, the release date, and then where's a website they can visit to learn more? The book released August 5th, 2020. uh, And our friends at Amazon, by the way, 82% of pastors uh, buy their books on Amazon, the last statistic I heard. All the major booksellers will have it. Uh, it's by Fortress Press is the actual publisher. We'd love to hear from you. If you read it or look into it, uh, we'd love to serve you and field your questions. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. You helped a lot of leaders today. Thank you, Carrie. 
I just love picking leaders' brains on things. And one of the things I love about this podcast is people have different opinions. They didn't 100% agree on everything, but some of my other guests might say, no, it's a little more like this, a little more like that. I think you make the best decisions when you have the widest variety of opinions. And if you want to do a double click on some of the things they talked about, we have show notes for you. You can find those at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 367. And well, we've got things that you can share on social media there as well. Uh, I've got a brand new podcast page too. If you have not yet checked out kerryneuhoff.com forward slash my podcast, do that or just go to kerryneuhoff.com and uh, click on the podcast tab. You'll see it there. Much easier to navigate. We spotlight some episodes. Recent episodes are there. And we would love to know your favorite episodes. We may actually feature you in a section we're calling listener favorites. So we kind of have... The top episodes outlined the most recent, but we want to know what your favorite are. Some of you, I know because I get get this mail, right? Some of you have listened to all 367 episodes, which is unbelievable. Uh, Which is your favorite? And we'll start profiling you there. So you can see yourself eventually over at my podcast page at kerryneuhoff.com. So make sure you check that out. Well, we got some great guests coming up. I am super excited to have Chris Hogan from... Dave Ramsey's company coming up on the next episode. And I'm just interested in studying human behavior. And uh, Chris shares some surprising data and insights from a 2017 study of 10,000 millionaires, largest ever done, and the habits that made them wealthy. It is not what you think. A lot of them never made a six-figure salary. So if you're like, I work for church or not for profit, and I'll never be rich and blah, blah, you know, rich is not the goal. But I'll tell you, if you got financial stress, you got stress. So Chris and I talk about that. Here's an excerpt. I'm going to tell you, the big salary thing was totally a myth. Looking at this, it just, I mean, I know people want to believe that, uh, but it's just, you know, a third of the millionaires that we study, a third of them did not have a six-figure household combined. All right, that's coming up next time on the podcast. Guys, if you subscribe wherever you're listening right now, just hit the subscribe button. And so many of you have done that. This has been massive growth for us over the last few months on this podcast. Thank you. Uh, We have a lot of guests coming up you're not going to want to miss. Greg Atkinson is back for round three on how to attract and keep church visitors. We have Rich Velotis, Lecrae, Harris III, uh, who else is coming up? And Graham Lotz, Lisa Turkhurst, Beth Moore just said, yeah, I'll come on the podcast. And uh, wow, so many more. Very excited for that. And now it's time for what I am thinking about. We're going to talk about some traps you can fall into on social media. I have felt these tensions. And make sure you check out our partners at Remodel Health. Visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry today to learn how to run your organization. Some savings in healthcare. Get access to their free savings calculator, church buyer's guide, brand new ebook at remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. And by Promedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash church growth. So you are online now more than ever before. And I think there are some traps for local pastors. Um, because you got your primary audience, which is the people that you serve, the the people that attend your church, maybe the people in your local community, but you also got the world, right? <laughs> because that's what the internet does is it brings the world to you. And so uh, how do you navigate this tension? And here are just five things I have to keep my heart in check. And I've seen this in other leaders as well. Number one, I think one of the traps for uh, local church leaders to fall into is you'll be tempted to ignore your people 
in search of a bigger audience. I think that's one of the secrets of growth, right? People, people ask me all the time. It's like, how did the podcast get so big? What about your blog? How do you get so many readers? And I think if you focus on serving, you always have the new people in mind, but if you focus on serving the people you have, that has a way of producing organic growth. Right. But it, you, you can kind of tell sometimes there are people who are online. It's like, I just want a bigger audience. And you have like 318 followers. It's like, mm, why don't you just serve the people who follow you and the people that you're called to? And then sometimes other people show up. Second trap is that you spend more time with people you don't know than with people you do. This applies to people who are kind of in like climbers, right? It's like, oh, I want to meet so and so. And so, you are trying to reach out and connect with people that you follow who might be, quote, famous, you know, or internet famous or niche famous or whatever that happens to be. And I'm just like, why don't you just, again, hang out with the people that you know really well, serve them. And then eventually what I think happens is some of the people who you may want to meet notice the good work you're doing and go, you know what, I'd, I'd love to connect with you. Or, or maybe they don't. And you just serve your people really well. Uh, third trap, you'll try to impress people you'll never meet. Yep, you got to watch it. If you're on social hoping to get noticed, to pick up followers, hoping to get picked, as Seth Godin writes about, you're signing up for a lot of frustration. You'll likely fall prey to imitation. If you're always trying to impress people you'll never meet, you'll spend so much time trying to be someone else that you'll fail to develop who you are. So just, I would say, stop trying to impress people you don't know. Uh, start serving people you do know. Uh, number four, fourth trap is you'll focus more on image and less on substance. Uh, I was having a conversation with a, a leader that I really respect the other day. And, you know, he said the fun thing that he sees in like this podcast and the blog I write and the books I do is it's like I, the audience came because of content. And uh, he's totally right. Um, you know, I did not have staff when I started doing this podcast. I, you know, I had some people to do some graphics and that kind of thing. But have you ever noticed this, that there's some people with incredible websites, but there's no substance there. It's like, it's beautifully designed. It looks gorgeous, but like you're, you're talking air. And uh, yeah, you don't want to make your website or your podcast really dense or difficult to access. On the other hand, you just focused on producing really, really good work um, and a little more on substance, less on image, I think it's easier to get traction. And then number five, the fifth trap is your sense of success will rise and fall with likes and shares. I see this a lot where it's like, well, I'm just not growing as fast as I want to grow or, you know, <laughs> Here, here's the reality. Does it really matter if some follower a thousand miles away thinks you're awesome, if your spouse or staff thinks you're awful? I don't think that really matters. And um, you shouldn't really depend on the opinion of people you will never meet and can't know. Uh, it's the people who are closest to you who should be the most grateful for you. So uh, those are just some thoughts that I hope help you as you navigate this new world of social media or what is new or advanced or accelerated for a lot of you. Uh, those are some things I'm thinking about. This, this is the stuff I love to write about over at kerryneuhoff.com. If you haven't yet subscribed to my newsletter, I've got one that I send out almost daily to over 70,000 leaders and you can get it for free. It's short. It's just a little daily dose of leadership wisdom, hopefully, or tips or insights or hacks. And you can get it by texting the word carry, my name, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33777. That's carry 33777. Text it there and we'll put you on the list. 
All right. Listen, thanks so much for listening. Back next time with a fresh episode. Super excited for it. And uh, really appreciate you with you in the season. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.